Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. An interesting guest we have for you today is Mr. Brexit himself, Nigel Farage. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here in it's Brexit Britain. <laughs> uh, you, you started off very non-partisan there, Nigel. Well done. Uh, but listen, it's great to have you on. I, I, I just set uh, the table a little bit and, and get our cards on that table. Francis and I both voted Remain. There will be a lot of people who watch the show who, who, who love you. There'll be lots of people who watch the show who, who hate you. There'll be lots of people who watch the show who are sort of in the middle between those two. But I think for us, the way we feel about it, if someone is objective about your career, they would have to admit that in terms of achieving your results, now people may hate the results you've achieved, but you've been one of the most successful politicians in my lifetime, certainly. Um, now, I wanted to talk a little bit about where that comes from, because you've had to fight. You know, when you're standing there next to the candidate for the monster raving loony party and you're closer to him <laughs> than you are to, to winning that election all those years ago, what is it that makes you tick and keep fighting and keep going? Well, I think once I was quite normal um, because I, I, you know, I left school, I skipped university because the the boom in the city had started. You know, Thatcher had been elected. Uh, there was the, the the development of something called the yuppie, and I thought, yeah, I like the look of that. I want to be a yuppie, so I skipped university, went to work in the city of London, worked on a place called the London Metal Exchange, um, which, as I've always said to people. We used to work very hard up until lunchtime every day. Um, <laughs> thereafter, it used to disintegrate pretty quickly. Um, and I played golf. You know, I was a four-handicap golfer. I got married young, had kids young. Um, and I was all set, really, you know, to, to stay in the commodity business. And the real ambition was to make money and live as high a lifestyle as I possibly could. Politics, current affairs, what well, I'd always cared about those things passionately, you know. I mean, growing up through the 1970s, seeing the three-day week, uh, doing homework by candlelight because of the power strikes, uh, seeing inflation get to nearly 30%, uh, then seeing this woman, uh, Mrs Thatcher, appear as if from nowhere, uh, become prime minister with a radical new agenda. So I'd always cared about politics and current affairs. And the funny thing was, Working in commodities, you know, very much a global business, copper, aluminium, all these things, you know, politics and current affairs affected those prices. Politics and current affairs were what we talked about all day long. And I was an avid free marketeer, um, you know, a great believer in Reaganomics, um, in, in much of what Thatcher stood for. I mean, I could see the downside of it, but I thought we have to have these radical reforms. We have, we have to take this medicine. So I always cared about all of these issues hugely, followed you know, what happened in Parliament very closely. But I'd never had the slightest intention even to stand for the local council. I thought, no, 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 that's not for me. You know, politics is for the Oxbridge set. You know, I'll let them get on with that. I'll get on with what I do. But what dawned on me in 1990, and we did a day on the exchange. It was 5, 5.30 in the evening. We were, you've guessed it, in the pub, in the city. <laughs> and this, of course, is before almost anybody had a mobile phone. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the young lads ran into the bar from the office, into the pub from the office, and said, we've just joined the exchange rate mechanism. Now, that was 
the means by which we peg sterling against a basket of European currencies, mainly, of course, the Deutschmark. And that was a precursor to us joining what we now know as the euro. Now, I won't, um, on trigonometry, uh, you tell you the Anglo-Saxon words that I used on hearing this news, <laughs> but I simply couldn't believe it. And the next day, going to London by train, the Conservative Party supported ERM, the Labour Party supported ERM, the Liberals supported ERM, the TUC supported ERM, the CBI supported ERM, and pretty much every single national newspaper supported ERM. And I looked at this and I thought, this is going to be a disaster. We are at a completely different phase of the economic cycle to Germany and the Central European economies. We are very much a services economy. They're much more a manufacturing economy. Um, I could see that the 80s boom had come to an end and that you know negative equity was appearing in property prices. I could see that a bust was coming. Uh, and I just thought, this is going to be a disaster. Well, for the next two years, I bored the life out of anybody that would listen. You know, in the office, on the train coming home from London. I mean, wherever I went, I became an ERM bore. And, of course, it was all bored out. Because the madness of what happened in September 92, when interest rates doubled just to keep the pound up and still inside the exchange rate mechanism. And that year was the year of record home repossessions. That year was the record year for small business bankruptcies. And I thought to myself, I don't know what it is, but I could see something that the political class couldn't see. And I realised that establishment status quos form around a set of ideas. And this is true, not just of politics, it's true in science, it's true in business. A status quo forms around an idea, uh, and, and, and groupthink takes over, or, or lack of proper thinking takes over. So I'd seen that experience, I'd been right about it, and then, you know, hard on the heels of that, we had this thing called the Maastricht Treaty, which is when the European community became the European Union. And I watched the Tory rebels in Parliament, you know, do their best, fight a rearguard action, but in the end, John Major put it down to a motion of confidence, and of course, like good little boys, they all went and supported the party and voted for the very thing that they'd said would be an economic and political disaster uh, for our nation and its independence. And I thought, this is really odd, because in my village, people don't support this. In my village, people want to be friendly with Europe and trade with Europe and not be governed by it. And I just determined then, in 93, I said, you know what? I don't care. I really don't care even if I'm the only person that votes for me, as a matter of principle, I'm going to fight these so-and-sos. So I put myself up for a by-election. I did beat Screaming Lord Such, only by 148, <laughs> yeah, 148 votes. I beat David Such by 100. What a lovely bloke he was. Um, and all my friends and family said, but surely this experience must put you off. You know, it's impossible to take on the establishment. And I I suppose then what kicked in was an absolute belief that I was right and just sheer bloody-mindedness. <laughs> and so I never stopped. And I kept campaigning in 1994, 95, 96, 97. 90. I never stopped 
campaigning. I never stopped, you know, going out, speaking in village halls. And if I got an audience of 30 or 40, I'd be thrilled in those days. And I kept on battling away. And then the big opportunity came for me. And that was in 1999, when for the first time in the history of this country, a national election was contested on the basis of proportional representation. And so I got elected to the European Parliament in 1999. And as a result of that, you know, you start to get invited onto Question Time and these programmes. Although, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was treated, you know, I mean, by the Dimblebys and all these people as if I was on sort of day release from a lunatic asylum, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, so really, that's the story. The story is the consensus establishment had decided this was our future for for, for the next foreseeable uh, decades or forever um and i just felt they were wrong i was right and i always in the bottom of my heart felt that actually middle england didn't agree with any of this so it's 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 nice of you to say that i've been very successful in achieving my goals and i have i just wish it hadn't taken 27 years well, I was going to ask you on a personal level, you, you talk about the political conviction, which I think everybody would recognize. But is there a part of you just likes pissing people off, Nigel, just a little bit, just annoy, winding people up a little bit? Is there a part of you that's that as well? Oh, enormously. <laughs> enormously. I mean, I, we were taught, I was very lucky. I really was lucky to go to a good school and, and to be taught by some great people. Mm. And you know, the older guys that taught me, who were all, you know, they'd all driven tanks or flown spitfires or whatever it was, or they played cricket for England. Well, an amazing group of people we had at Dulwich teaching us. And, you know, the good ones taught us question everything. Don't accept anything at face value. Question everything. Debate everything. And I think, you know, during my teens, I sort of took that to the nth degree. <laughs> Often of articulating positions that I didn't believe in at all, uh, just because I enjoyed... Uh, getting the reaction back. Although nothing could prepare me, I suppose, for becoming the pantomime villain of the European Parliament. I mean, you know, amazing. You know, when I got up to speak and sort of 500 people started booing. Um, now, most human beings would not want to live with that experience. You know, most human beings would temper their ideas because normally people like to fit in. Normally people like to feel a sense of belonging. But it just didn't. It just didn't matter to me. Uh, and and in the in the latter years, I mean, in, in Brussels particularly, you know, coffee shops wouldn't serve me, pubs banned me, restaurants wouldn't allow me in. I mean, that's how far it went. Wow. And yet, and yet, I took it all as a compliment. I thought. I remember in 2014, and that was the worst of it. 2014 was the worst of it in terms of the press, and it was just unbelievable. I mean for standing up and saying that I thought the foreign aid budget was being badly spent, for standing up and saying that I thought actually the untrammeled free movement of unskilled labour was really not helping working people in Britain, pushing down their wages, damaging their access to public services. I mean, I I looked back the other day at some of the interviews I was doing with Sky News and the BBC back in 2014. I mean, you really would have thought for all the world that I was heralding you know, 1930s German-style fascism to come into Britain. I mean, that was the level of hostility to my ideas, and they've now become mainstream ideas. Anyway, it was difficult. And I I remember one morning, one Sunday morning in 2014, the phone rang here at about 7am, and it was my lawyer. I thought, oh, my God, 
the law is ringing on a Sunday morning, but this can't be good. And he just said to me, Andrew, he said, you know what? Don't buy the newspapers. Don't have a look online. Just don't read any of it because it will damage your confidence. And I took his advice. And as the years went on, I just didn't read any of it. I certainly didn't look at Twitter and see what people were saying. I stuck to what I believed in, what I knew to be true. I did my absolute best to be honest with people about what I thought Brexit meant and what some of the downsides might be. I did that all through the referendum campaign as well. But it was tough to withstand it. But I, I never forget in 14 getting a letter written in spidery handwriting. And the man said, Dearest Farage, I'm 93 years old. During the war, I served in Bomber Command. He said, and I can tell you, you only start taking heavy flack when you're getting near the target. And I never, ever forgot that letter. The establishment were literally terrified of me. Uh, Brussels, perhaps even more so. Um, and so I, I learned, um, I learned to um, enjoy my own company <laughs> quite a lot <laughs> because nobody else wanted to be seen or talked to. And even you know, you go to the supermarket, you know, going round, you know, the local Waitrose, buying the essentials, you know, gin, tonic, lemons, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and you know, and people would look like, good luck with it all. So, God, I hope the neighbours haven't seen I spoke to him. It was as if this sort of mantle of being the devil was put upon me. So, so there must have been something slightly unusual in my makeup um, to, to make me endure it. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I can laugh about it now. Uh, some of it was pretty tough. And, Nigel, we talk about, you know, something, you know, experiences being very tough. You've had a lot of epithets being hurled against you, far-right, racist, etc., etc., in your own opinion, why do you think it is that people have hurled these epithets at you? Oh, I think that I think that when you challenge orthodoxy, um, rather than examining whether the criticism of the orthodoxy is valid or not, uh, you seek to dismiss the other person with abuse and insults. It was the great uh, Gandhi, wasn't it, who, who said about the campaign for Indian independence from the British Empire, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, and then you win. A complete refusal to deal with ideas uh, and a belief that just by hurling abuse, you can destroy the other side. Um, and, and I mean, Cameron tried it. It was quite funny, actually. Cameron tried it. Uh, Cameron was on with Nick Ferrari on LBC. He was asked about Nigel Farage and UKIP. Oh, he said, a bunch of fruitcakes, loonies and closet racists, mostly. Now, that was quite a wounding thing for a prime minister to say about a party that I led. But actually, it helped us because people could see how unreasonable he was being. You know, everyone said, oh, Farage stands for this, Farage stands for that. Well, have you ever, ever actually read what he's actually said? And it was as if people were choosing to interpret what I'd said rather than actually reading the words. And, 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 you know, the truth of it is that nation states make their own laws. Nation states have their own courts. Nation states control their own borders and choose who they think are fit and proper people to come and settle in their country. I mean, these were all perfectly reasonable, uh, sensible points of view, uh, but were demonised because they challenged 
the establishment. Uh, and I, you know, I would say this uh, to anybody uh, that tries to, you know, paint out UKIP and, 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 and what it stood for in, in that racist way. You know, I was the only party leader who banned anybody who'd ever been a member of the British National Party from even becoming a member of UKIP. You know, I drew that line within my own party. And do you know something? In 2006, Nick Griffin had quite a big tailwind behind him. You know, a lot of dispossessed white working class who were very unhappy what was happening in their communities had started to vote for Nick Griffin. Once I'd drawn that line that we wouldn't accept BNP members and supporters, but if you were holding your nose and voting BNP as a protest but didn't agree with their outright racist policies, you could come and vote for me. And they did. I think I did more. I mean, here we are. Here's the funny thing about my critics. I, I honestly believe I did more to stop the rise of the far right in this country than any other individual. And I really mean that. And Nigel, do you not do you ever look back on the campaign with UKIP and also with Brexit and go, I made a misstep here. I gave ammunition to the people criticizing me. Do you know something? On those days, you know, during election campaigns, on those days out in the road, um, on the road, you know, I go to a market town in Staffordshire, all right, for argument's sake. You know, I do a street walk about, go in the betting shop, go in the pub, uh, you, you know, meet people in the town square. And I would then probably spend the next three to four hours being interviewed by local newspapers, local radio stations, you know, local broadcasters on, you know, YouTube or whatever else it would be. I mean, I, I gave more interviews than anybody ever because I had to do that to propel this party into the public's consciousness. You cannot, you cannot do thousands of hours of interviews. You cannot speak, you know, hundreds of thousands of words without sometimes making a mistake. Of course, we're all human. We're all bound to make mistakes. We're all bound to say things that we think afterwards, oh, well, that wasn't very bright because I know how they're going to portray it. So, of course, we make mistakes. But but what I would say, and what I do think came through to people, whether they agreed with what I was saying or not, I like to think that I put the message across in a very clear, succinct way so that people could understand what the message is. And I think I managed to get that through. And I also think that people felt, again, whether they agreed or not, that what I was saying, I genuinely and sincerely believed in. Hmm. Yeah, and the other thing I think people felt, and this included people like me who were at the time on a completely different side of the argument, uh, was that you were being subject to different standards than everybody else. You were being unfairly treated by large sections of the media. And, and you know, frankly, maybe if, they, if they'd not done that, you might not have been as successful. Do you think that's possible if they just let you on the shows and didn't treat you as a sort of weirdo? Do you know, it's very interesting. I was talking yesterday to a political commentator who made the point to me that in the 2015 general election, when UKIP got 4 million votes and one seat, you know, UKIP got <laughs> more votes than the SNP and the Lib Dems and Clyde all added up together and one seat. Almost that sense of injustice at what had happened within our system, 
I think propelled even more people to vote leave in the referendum of 2016 than would have done before. So yes, I think there are a lot of very fair-minded people out there uh, who don't like bullying, who don't like unfairness. And ironically, I think you're right. I think the worse they behave, the more unreasonable uh, they were. Uh, I think in many ways, the more it galvanised support behind me, yes. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Well, if you do, then EasyDNS are the company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, deplatform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows a bit about that. So will you in a second. EasyDNS have rock-solid network infrastructure and incredible customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You'd know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now. All you've got to do is head over to easydns.com forward slash triggered and use our promo code, which is, of course, triggered as well, and you will get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, that tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. Nigel, to my mind, you were one of the first mainstream political figures when I became politically aware that was talking about immigration. Why is it that immigration is such a taboo subject in this country? And if you come out in favour of limiting immigration, that immediately paints you as being far right and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I've long believed that the greatest intellectual that we had in post-war politics in Britain was Enoch Powell. I mean, I, I mean, you know, hard to disagree with that. I mean, the man was extraordinary. The man was brilliant. The man was very far-sighted. And if I look at what he was saying about the common market in 1972, it's all come true. But, but the speech that he gave in 1968, the speech that became known as the Rivers of Blood speech, I think it was so ill-judged in terms of its tone and the way that it was allowed to be interpreted that it almost put the tin lid on having a sensible immigration debate for decades after that. And I think that did real, real damage. When I was first elected in 1999, on all of my election literature, the word immigration didn't appear. Didn't appear. Why? Because net migration into Britain was averaging about 30,000 a year. It was still at a level that concerned some people, but it was, let's be honest about it, it was pretty manageable. And I looked at things in the late 90s, and I compared assimilation, integration of different communities in the United Kingdom, and compare it to France and Germany, or, or the Netherlands, or anywhere else in Europe, You know, we'd done this better than anybody else. We really had done this better than anybody else. So I didn't even discuss immigration. And the same applied in 2000, 2001, 2002. When I saw, when I saw that what Blair had done was to open the doors effectively to the world, but then especially to open the doors to eight and then 10 former communist countries, some of whom had minimum wages, 
that were seven, eight times lower than the British minimum wage, some of which had not made the transition from being communist states to free Western economies. And when Mr. Blair told us that 13,000 people a year would arrive as a result of this, I thought, this is the moment. This is going to become the issue. So I made a very big call in 2004, a very big call. I said that millions would come. I said huge numbers would come to Britain. I said it would have a very damaging effect on you know, the life of lots of ordinary people. Um, and so that was the moment. That was the moment that immigration became part of my political fight. Why does it matter so much? Well, of course, it doesn't matter if you're a cabinet minister. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're a big business owner, because it means cheaper nannies, cheaper gardeners, and cheap labour. But it matters hugely to everybody else, because we did unquestionably see compression of labour, crises with our primary schools, just not simply being able to cope with the numbers, um, and, and, you know, disjointed communities where, you know, the numbers coming in that spoke foreign languages or from different cultures were so fast that we weren't getting that level of integration that we need to have a settled, happy society. So without immigration, without well, there were two things, actually. Without immigration and without the internet, the UKIP would have remained a fringe force in British politics. But those two things propelled it to where it got to. Mm. And Nigel, all three of us, I'm a, I came to this country in 1995 from a former Soviet country uh, in Russia. And I, I remember actually the point that you make, the levels were so low, no one really cared about immigration. I think the public concern about immigration at the time was about 3% in 1995. It changed when you got here. <laughs> it changed when I got here, absolutely. <laughs> I, I single-handedly ruined it. Um, but, but you understand, but, I mean, coming from your background, you understand what I mean. I mean, yeah, countries, I like, completely. countries like Bulgaria, and Romania, which is so much in the grip of organised crime, you know, we the sensible thing to do would have been to be cautious, but we weren't. And 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 of course, I was called all sorts of things for daring to say this. Uh, this, but that was how ordinary folk felt. And and you know yourself, having come here in 1995, that you know you would not find a country in the European time zone more welcoming and more open than this. In, in the world, Nigel. In the world. I make this point to people all the time, all the time. Britain is one of the most tolerant, welcoming places in the entire history of the human race. And that really was what shifted my thoughts on a lot of this stuff, because I saw after the referendum, in which I was a very strong Remain supporter at the time, suddenly the explanation for why Brexit happened was that everybody in this country was racist. And that's when I went, no, that isn't true. That's not my experience as a dark-skinned immigrant in this country. Yeah, that was disgusting. I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, talking to you guys, you're Remainers, but you're Democrats, so you accept the result. That's great, of course. You know, that's how it should be. But frankly, the behaviour of large sections of our elected politicians in Westminster to completely refuse to accept the result of the, of the referendum, to denigrate, as you've just pointed out, those who dared to vote against the establishment view, and then every attempt to prevent it from happening or make us vote again. I honestly think that in 100 years' time, we will look back at the history of this period and school kids will be taught that it was one of the most shameful episodes 
in what is supposed to be a democratic country. So did you get what you wanted, Nigel? Because we've got Brexit. Uh, we we got the Australian style point system that you were talking about, right? That that's we've got a, a Tory government, uh, but the numbers of people coming into the country are the same as they ever were. Oh yes, I mean, look, you know, the Conservative Party are not a Conservative Party. Mm. I mean, it's just a complete misnomer. Um, and and Boris Johnson and the sort of posh boys around him. Um, they don't regard immigration as an issue. They used it briefly in the referendum, very briefly in the referendum, because it suited their purposes to do so. Um, and you're right, uh, net migration is still running at very, very high levels. And we also face a very big dilemma as to what to do about Hong Kong. And I say big dilemma because, you know, I am very concerned about the influence the Chinese Communist Party is having upon the free world, upon its own world too. And yet, you know, what would it mean if 300,000 or 3 million people came and settled in the United Kingdom from Hong Kong? So, so I think that is the time when the immigration debate will be back on. Um, for the moment, for the moment, uh, the Conservatives are able to get away with something, which is the public perception is that because of Brexit, we've dealt with the issue. The truth is we haven't. The truth is and we haven't. And look, you, you know, you asked me that question. I mean, the truth is that you never, ever get everything you want in victory. Sometimes losing's easier. <laughs> it's a bit like trading the markets. You know, you've got a position on the markets. It's going wrong. You can't sleep for a week. You get rid of the position. You take your loss. You feel almost a sense of relief that it's over. When you've got a winning trade, you always say, oh, I should have done it in a bigger size. I should have got out a bit earlier. Victory is never perfect. But look, when I see what's happened with our withdrawal from the European Medicines Agency and the fact that we've been able to act in the interest of our own people with the vaccine rollout, compared to the absolute shambles in Brussels, uh, that I think, that I think will be the lasting testament as to why being in control of national decisions and having those decisions made by people directly accountable to us is a better way of doing things. So look, I'm not happy about the fishing deal. I'm very unhappy about Northern Ireland being cast out. Uh, there are some ridiculous things going on, um, you know, with goods at our borders. But overall, overall, we're in a good place. And, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Just a few days ago, we've learned that the 25% tariff on Scotch whiskey, something that really hurts. You know, Scotland's got enough economic problems without that industry, with nearly 50,000 people working in and around Scotch whiskey, that because we've left the European Union, we've been able to negotiate that tariff being suspended. So I think there are lots of arguments and lots of reasons that will say to us as the years go by that Brexit was the right thing to do. And I think those debates and those questions will now be asked in European capitals as well. And what do you think is going to be the future, Nigel, of the European Union? Do you think that they were going to go on and become this federation of European states, which is what they want? Or do you think that the kibosh has been placed on it because of the pandemic 
and the fact that a lot of these countries have their own uh, Frexit or whatever it may be movement to leave? Well, they've already gone a long way, haven't they? I mean, you know, think about it. You know, why is the speed limit for lorries on our roads 56 miles an hour? Because it's 80 kilometres. You know, that was set in Brussels. You know, why is it that our swipe cards are going up in value? Because we've left the European Union. We're now free to choose our own limits. I mean, the extent to which already the EU governs people's lives is pretty extraordinary. I, I've always taken the view that the greatness of Europe as a continent is the incredible linguistic and cultural diversity that exists within it. You know, drive a thousand miles across the Midwest of America. I mean, every gas station is the same. You know, everything's the same. Uh, you drive a hundred miles across Europe, you meet completely different people eating different types of cheese. I mean, that's the beauty of Europe is that it is so diverse. And provided that it's democratic, it'll be a peaceful Europe too. And I think, I think in many ways, post-1945, and I mean, don't forget, we weren't occupied, were we? You know, we didn't live through what many of the what many of these people lived through in, in two world wars, occupation, massacre of tens of millions of people. And the conclusion that was drawn was that the existence of nation states had led to these terrible wars. So what we have to do is to abolish nation states, but at no point to tell the public that's what the plan is. I mean, that's where the EU started. And it's not the existence of nation states that causes war. In fact, you're actually more likely to have wars if you have a, if you have a remote you know, bureaucracy that you can't vote for and can't remove. Provided nation states are democratic, you will have peace. I can't think of a single example of two mature, functioning democracies going to war with each other. And that is something I think we should be thinking about very, very hard when it comes to the future of Europe. Nigel, and moving on now, talking about mature functioning democracies, one of the things that I think we'll probably disagree most on is your mate, Donald Trump. Now, I don't, neither, no one here on the show has this sort of instinctive aversion to him where he's the devil incarnate and whatever. But I have to say, and there's plenty of people who, who, who are fans of Trump who watch our show, and we have the same respect for them as we do for the rest of our audience. But were you not troubled, Nigel? You just talked about how the, the establishment in this country refused to accept the results of the referendum. Were you not troubled by Donald Trump's rhetoric about the fake news election, uh, the election was stolen, it was all a fraud, resulting in people being in Washington, resulting in people storming the Capitol, poor woman got shot over it, for, for really nothing. They were never going to change anything. Did, did you not regret in any way your support for him in that moment? So let's talk about double standards, shall we? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about double standards beginning on November the 8th, 2016. And for the next four years, the Democrats, CNN and the New York Times did everything they could to delegitimize Trump's election victory. In I agree with you completely. I, I agree with you. I agree. Endless. Let me just pause you there just for, for one reason, which is we've covered all of that on the show a lot. We've talked about BLM and Antifa violence a lot. This is all things on which we can agree, actually. But Trump, what he did after the last election, do you not think that was also irresponsible? 
look, I said in mid-August, right, in mid-August, I was on Steve Bannon's show in Washington. He said, what's going to happen with the election? I said, well, before the virus, I thought Trump would win by a landslide. Mm. I said, but now what I can see for the first time in American history is the mass transfer to postal voting, to absentee postal voting. I said, I'll tell you what I think will happen. Trump will win on the day comfortably, but lose as we get the count back over the next few days. I have witnessed at first hand how the postal voting system is wide open to fraud and abuse in this country. I've seen it. I've complained about it for 20 years. It is not a safe system. It's why France effectively has just stopped it completely. Was Trump right to question the integrity of postal ballots? Yes. Was he right to point out that somehow the Republican Party had won seats across the state legislatures, had won seats in the House of Representatives, and that somehow this mass vote for Biden in the big cities looked anomalous? Yes, of course, he was quite right to do it. Was it, given the febrile atmosphere that was that was around, was it wise to do a rally on the 6th of January in Washington, D.C.? No, I don't think it was. But I, again, I mean, the way that that speech he gave that day was twisted and manipulated by the media was quite something. You know, he said to them, go in peace. Some of them chose not to. Um, so, look, I, yeah, I do think the 6th of January rally was a mistake, just given how febrile it was. Uh, but I think he is, in, in many ways, uh, the most misquoted, the most misinterpreted political figure that I've ever seen. And I'll tell you what, right now, if you live in London, right now, you are getting letters almost bullying you to go onto a postal vote register. And, this, and I think this election integrity is going to become a massive issue in both British and American politics. But, but do you not think, Nigel, that some of... Donald Trump's rhetoric was inflammatory and as a result that riled people up and in a way you could argue that type of backlash was inevitable after you spent months questioning the veracity of the election. I think if you look at his words, if you look at his words on the day, they weren't. However, however, I think Rudy Giuliani's words were very questionable. Yeah, very questionable indeed. The thing that troubled me about it as well, Nigel, I, you know, We've had plenty of pro-Trump guests on the show and we give everybody a, a fair hearing as we've given you. But yeah. with Trump, when that happened, I started to get a sort of cult of personality vibe off the whole thing, how some people were reacting. People were claiming that it was actually BLM infiltrators who'd stormed all of this sort of crazy stuff. And you, that's when I went, hold on a second. These really, these people, some of these people really believe all this crazy nonsense. And that troubled me. Did that trouble you? Yeah, I, mean, I never bought into any of that, and you wouldn't expect me to. No, of course I not. Said, you know, I said, I said two days after the election, I said, however hard the Trump team try to overturn this result, they will not succeed. Mm -hmm. Knowing 
the abuses that take place with postal voting and proving them are two different things. You're talking to somebody that lost a court case in 2019 <laughs> over postal voting in Peterborough. Um, so I always thought, I always thought that he would lose uh, and it wouldn't be possible to prove it. Look, you say cult of personality. He has, he's brought together the Republican Party in a way that no other human being could have done. He's broadened the appeal of the Republican Party in a way that no other, no other leader has been able to do. And, you know, you look at the rising share of black and Hispanic voters now turning out voting for Trump and the Republican Party. You look at the class base, you know, many more working class people voting Republican than they did before. Now, I know that I know that in the middle class suburbs, they find him a, bit, a little bit rich for their uh, for their diet. <laughs> um, but whichever way you cut this, you know, I've seen it. I've seen it on the ground. This guy has a level of personal support that is phenomenal. And we're now moving into a new phase. And this is, I think this is interesting, guys. So when Hillary lost in 2016, the Democrats effectively did not have a leader for the next few years. You know, Schumer and Pelosi would speak for the Democrats. Uh, CNN and the New York Times effectively became the opposition. What you've now got is a leader of the Republican Party in place as an opposition leader. Um, and I think, you know, you saw his opening speech at CPAC. And I think he's going to prove to be a very, very effective opposition leader. I really do. Do you think he's going to run again in 2024? Do you know something? Every US president that goes into the White House, when they leave after four years or eight years, they've aged about 30 years. <laughs> They're virtually stretched out after the experience. Trump looks fitter and more energised, uh, you know, now than he did in 2016 when he went there. Um, he, I mean, he will face a choice, won't he? He will certainly lead the party up to the midterms in 2022. I'm I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. He will then have to decide whether he wants to do it again or whether he wants to become the kingmaker. Um, my, My sense of him and who he is and the, and love him or hate him, the phenomenal drive. I mean, this, this guy is just amazing. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people that work for him. I mean, none of them could even keep up with it. I mean, he's just extraordinary. My sense is that, that he intends to run again, yeah. Francis, how is your cybersecurity? I've got a virus from an unnamed website. Of course you do. You're not alone, Francis. During the pandemic, British online infrastructure has faced an astronomical rise in targeted cyber attacks, which is what I'm sure happened to you. That is dreadful. What can I do to defend myself? That is where Pocket Seam come in. They offer businesses like ours a special solution that alerts us to hackers, crackers, and malicious employees. Like Anton. Not only that, they are the only Seam provider to offer pay-as-you-go cyber defense for companies. They're British-based. Absolutely, and they're from Doncaster, so they need the work. I mean, you say that. Actually, they have kept their prices flat during the pandemic to make sure companies can get the protection they need. Pocket Seam are offering trigonometry fans a 10% discount. All you got to do is hit them up by email at info at 
and make sure the subject of that email is trigonometry and they will give you your 10% discount for managed cybersecurity. That email again is info at p-o-c-k-e-t-s-i-e-m.co.uk. And don't forget to have trigonometry in your subject line so you get your 10% discount. Can I just say, if you needed that spell, you really shouldn't be running a business. And Nigel, we've seen Trump lose the election. Uh, We've seen Brexit come to fruition. This has been all uh, under the umbrella of right-wing populism. I don't know if you agree with it or if you disagree with it. But do you think that particular movement that you and Trump were at the helm of has now run its course and we're now going to see a different political movement take the helm? No, I don't at all, actually. I, I, I mean, it's called right-wing populism, but actually a lot of the policies aren't right-wing at all. And a lot of the supporters, I mean, look at this country. Who were the people voting? Who, who were the people turning up for UKIP and the Brexit party? Lots of them, old Labour voters. You know, I was like the gateway drug for Boris Johnson, wasn't I? You know, <laughs> once, they, once they'd broken that link with the Labour party, they were okay to move on and vote Tory in 2019. No, I think that the... One of the lessons um, of the great shocks with the Brexit vote and with the Trump vote is that is that the liberal establishment learnt nothing from it at all. They are intent on continuing to pursue the same course. They've added to it a new level of wokery uh, that leads so many people just shaking their heads and wondering, what's going on so no i far from it i think uh, i think this movement that says the capital cities are out of touch with flyover states or middle england or whatever the equivalent in the end is going to be in italy or france or germany no 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 i i i i i think trump losing was kind of a hiccup um along that path i think politics western politics has fundamentally changed and i really believe it'll go on doing so and moving on now to China, which you, I think you would say, is the next big issue of our time. Could you explain why you believe that and what are the challenges we're going to face with, a ch- with a China, in particular led by the CCP? Well, I mean, if we, you know, if we talked about a country that imprisons hundreds of thousands of one of its minorities in re-education camps, mm. um, that actually enforces sterilisation on rather large numbers of women. I mean, that alone, if we were to raise as an issue for somebody that might be a great trading partner and friend of ours going forwards, you know, the red light would go up immediately, but it doesn't. We have the the handover deal with Hong Kong, where their autonomy was supposed to be guaranteed till 2047, and where democracy is literally being snuffed out with every week that goes by. And yet we say very little. We have the origin of this virus that has done the world so much harm, and yet no one dares really criticise the extent of the cover-ups that clearly took place in Wuhan. Why is it that China is able to buy up mineral resources, to gain influence in our country, to be allowed to be part of the 5G network, at least initially. Why is this all happening? And this is my take on it, all right? They have very very cleverly subverted many of the ruling classes of our country. 
and I'm talking about senior civil servants, senior political figures, big businessmen and women. You know, just look at the just look at the advisory board of Huawei over the last five years. It's a roll call of all of those people. And, you know, the prime minister. I mean, he has a father that has a very good relationship with Beijing and, and with the former ambassador in London, a brother that, you know, has worked for Goldman Sachs in Beijing, uh, now works for them in Hong Kong. And when he's asked about the arrest of the um, democracy activist, says we must understand this is China now. He's got another brother that when he was university's minister, twinned Reading University with one of the technology colleges in China. I mean, and, and is it any surprise that Boris declares himself to be a Sinophile? Because all the influences around him are pro-China, which is led by the CCP. So I just think that the more we talk about this issue, the more appalled people will be. I mean, for example, if I order on Amazon, right, it does not tell me when I'm buying a product where it's made. So it's quite difficult for me even not to buy goods from China, even if I want to. And, you know, the Belt and Road strategy that's been outlined very clearly by President Xi, you know, that is an attempt to basically to take over the world. And it's happening uh, without much comment. And I think that poses a great threat to us. I really do. I find it interesting as someone who comes from the Soviet Union, you know, some of the stuff that the Chinese are doing now to some of their citizens are what happened in my country. But at that time, people didn't really know it was happening until Solzhenitsyn came out and wrote the Gulag Archipelago and word finally got out. But now we know and we still seemingly don't care. Is it just the economics, Nigel? We're so tied in that, that, that frankly, the ordinary consumer in the West Yes, we sort of care about the Uyghurs, but but we want the cheap iPhone. Well, actually, some of the polling on this is very interesting. You know, some of the polling is beginning to show a shift where consumers are beginning to say they are prepared to pay a bit more not to buy goods from China. But it's quite difficult to avoid them in many areas, particularly if, if the origin of manufacture is hidden, as it is with so many online sales. There is a shift going on. Um, but it's not been more rapid because very few people in high command in our country are prepared to say so. And, and, and not in every case, but in many cases, the self-same people that were happy to sell us out to Brussels are happy to sell us out to Beijing. Mm. Uh, Nigel, well, before we move on towards the end of the interview and ask our, our typical last question, uh, I was just, what do you make of Boris Johnson? <laughs> well, look, you know, he's a, he's a jolly fellow. <laughs> he's quite good at spreading around a bit of optimism. You should make him sound like a dog, Nigel. <laughs> Cheers, you up, sits on I your mean, lap. A dog with a new wallpaper that's causing all the trouble. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I have honestly got... No idea what he stands for, none. Absolutely no idea what he stands for. He certainly isn't conservative in any way. I mean, he pretends to be in election time, but he's sort of a metro liberal, really, isn't he? Yeah. And that's kind of where the Conservative Party has gone. Um, it was exactly that 
under Cameron and Osborne. And I almost think when you look at the sort of coterie of people, I mean, Cummings was an exception, but but perhaps. But when you look at the coterie of people, um, you know, around Boris, uh, you know, we kind of are back to the Oxbridge posh set running the country. And I think they're really very, very disconnected. But, hey, they said they'd get Brexit done. It's imperfect, but they have. They've got everything wrong with the pandemic, everything wrong, and yet the vaccine is saving them. Um, but Boris's, Boris's greatest attribute, and it's really back to it's really back to Napoleon, not wanting good generals, but wanting lucky generals, is that first Boris Johnson had to face Jeremy Corbyn, and now he's got some bloke called Starmer, who most of the electorate couldn't pick out of a lineup. So there is so there is no real effective opposition. So I suspect. I suspect that he'll be prime minister as long as he wants to be. And Nigel, does that mean we're in political crisis then if we've got no effective opposition? Um, I think politics is permanently in crisis in many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the Labour Party needs to decide what it is. Uh, and, and you can see that Starmer tries to ride both horses at once. They've got to work out what they actually are. Um, you could argue, you could argue that far from being in crisis, we're in a period of relative stability. You know, we had crisis, didn't we? Perpetual crisis, really, from 2016 to the end of 2019. It went on and on and on and on and on. We're now in a period of stability. That doesn't mean we'll get good government. It doesn't mean we'll get good scrutiny. But the odd thing is that large sections of the electorate just don't care anymore. They've lived through the emotional trauma of Brexit. And frankly, what do they want to do? They want to get out of lockdown, get into the sunshine and enjoy their lives. Politics has slipped way down people's agendas from where it was. So we are in for a period of relatively quiet politics. Well, it's possibly no bad thing, to be honest with you, given how heated it has got. Uh, but Nigel, thank you for coming on the show. We've got one final question for you, which is always the same, which is what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? The indoctrination in our schools. Uh, and it's not just in universities. It's not just uh, at secondary level. Actually, from the ages of seven or eight, there are all sorts of very pernicious ideas being fed into the minds of young children about this country, their identity. And I think we need to have a good, honest, open debate about it because I'm very disturbed by some of it. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Francis and I will have a lot to say and a lot of questions to ask you. That's an issue we cover a lot. And what you're really referring to is the culture war, the, the battle over gender identity, the battle over our history, the battle over... Uh, the heritage, the way we should think about Britain and the rest of the West is on in a sort of balanced way, or do we only focus on the negatives? Uh, why do you think that is such an important issue? Uh, because I think we're poisoning the minds of our young children. Uh, I, I think we're we're not just poisoning them, but we're also, as a direct result of all of this, dividing everybody up. You know, Martin Luther King, who I think we all admire not just for his oratory, which was, my goodness me, extraordinary, mm. 
but for his message. You know, I want my four children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And now we're saying, ah, you're black, you're in that group, you're Asian, you're in that group, you're transgender, you're in that group. We're dividing everybody up. Mm-hmm. We're not bringing people together. And to to try and tell white people that somehow they are guilty and on some of the wilder fringes of academia, that somehow the United Kingdom, Great Britain, I mean, you know, we're as bad as Nazi Germany, according to some of these people. This is Marxist poison that is being fed into the minds of young people. And of course, you know, its goal is to bring down the state entirely, to bring down capitalism completely. And yet, it's not being opposed because we don't have people in politics robust enough to stand up to this stuff. And, you know, you've seen it, you've covered it. You know, I mean, when I mean, it goes beyond schools, for goodness sake. When senior police officers take the knee to an organisation that wants to defund them, I think we've got a bit of a problem. So, yeah, I do think the whole culture war stuff, uh, I, I think it is desperately important that we fight this. And if we don't, we'll finish up with a society bitterly divided and with more enmity than we've ever seen before. And on that upbeat note, thank you very much, (laughs) Nigel, for coming on the show. Um, If people want to follow you, where's the best place to do that? Because you have a YouTube channel now as well, don't you? Yeah, they can get me on YouTube. They can get me wherever they like. I'm everywhere. Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, websites. Google me. I'm there. Okay. Nigel, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. And thank you all for watching. We will see you very soon with another episode uh, or a live stream, all of them at 7 p.m. UK time. Take care. See you soon, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.